0: Coming up on this week's show, play your NES online. Jurassic Park turns
1: 30. And we geek out about Street Fighter 2 with Oliver Harper.
0: And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you every Friday with our amazing friends at Bitmap Books. Now, one of my favourite books that they've done recently, The Secret History of Mac Gaming. Check out the brand-new expanded edition covering the Mac as a gaming platform. Franchises like Myst, Halo, SimCity, and lots more all started live on the Mac and this incredible volume at over 480 pages long is one of their biggest most ambitious books to date you can check that out on the rest of their retro gaming books at bitmapbooks.com hello and welcome to the retro hour podcast episode number 376 your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me Dan Wood me Ravi Abbott and me Joe Fox And a very warm welcome to our first podcast of May. Of course, a show that every week brings you up to speed on all the big happenings in the world of retro gaming and technology from over the last week. A nice little roundtable discussion in the first half of the podcast and plenty of meaty news stories to get our teeth into this week, even though I'm I'm actually a vegetarian. (laughs) Uh, And then second half of the podcast is when we welcome on our very special guest. Now, uh, oh my God, how much fun was chatting to Oliver Harper on this week's show Joe.
2: Oh man, you know what? It was he was so fun and it was such like an energetic, you know, uh, interview because he he mentions it in the interview and how when he first kind of started doing his, you know, his reviews, what he's kind of famous for is his really in-depth like retrospectives of films, but then he does it with video game franchises as well, which I absolutely love. And he was saying when he first started out, he was very calm and cool and collect. Um, you know, and, and maybe a little bit monotone. And I kind of like, I like that. I find his voice very relaxing because I'm a big fan mm. of Oliver Harper. And then talking to him on on the show, he was like bouncing off us, like full of energy and stuff. And I absolutely loved it. And it was, I really, really loved this chat. And uh, obviously, you know, we spoke all about his YouTube channel and his own gaming memories and stuff, which I found hilarious. Like it's kind of like his journey, you know, with like the CDI and stuff like that. Um, he backed
0: all the wrong horses Yeah, them, pretty much. He, yeah, he
2: did, uh, which I thought was fantastic. But then we really kind of got into the meat of it, as you said earlier on, and we talked about his brand new Street Fighter II documentary, Here Comes a New Challenger, for about half an hour, which was just really cool. Um, me
0: and Dan, very lucky to have seen the documentary, and uh, it's absolutely fantastic, isn't it, Dan? It is, and that's the thing. I mean, you know, Street Fighter II, we talk about this in the, in the interview, that really... It's often credited as the game that kind of rejuvenated the arcades. You know, mm. you kind of think, obviously the arcades scene kind of faded off as we got into the late 90s. But, you know, there are some people that think that without Street Fighter 2, it might have actually died off a couple of years earlier. You know, that was responsible for a massive resurgence of getting people back in there. Then, of course, we have the amazing home ports as well. And, you know, the amount of friends I had who bought Super Nintendos just for Street Fighter 2. You know that there aren't many games that are like big system sellers like that. So um, definitely something that really changed the landscape of video games and continues to this day. I mean, you know, we talk about in the interview the the amount of times we've bought new versions of Street Fighter Two or new upgrade packs or different. I mean, it's probably up there with Sonic the Hedgehog Two for me in terms of games that I've rebought on pretty much every console i've had for the last 30 years
2: yeah i'll agree i've got many different versions of street fighter 2 but i guess it goes hand in hand because there's so many different versions of the actual game itself but yeah i think i've got it on pretty much every console since the mega drive i've got some sort of form of street fighter 2 but yeah i mean we even talk about like its impact it's had on pop culture you know the, the amount of people who who aren't really gamers but know what street fighter are or even know what you're doing when you do the classic like hadouken kind of thing like they know what it is, or at least they know it's from that fighting game, you know. So, yeah. I've got to ask
0: a question, Joe, I know you love the original Mario movie. What what are your thoughts on the uh, live-action Street Fighter <laughs>
2: movie? I, li- I like Street Fighter the movie. I knew you would. I knew you would. <laughs> <laughs> it's ridiculous, but I like it.
0: So we do touch on that, and obviously the uh, the animated movie as well, that you know, is a big fan favourite. And, uh, yeah, just a great chat. Cause, I mean, Oliver, he's run his YouTube channel since 2011, but also in more recent years he's gone into producing, you know, proper commercial documentaries mm. that are on, you know, services like Amazon prime. I mean, there was, um, in search of the last action heroes yeah. that came out a couple of years ago. And at this, a massive new two and a half hour epic, beautifully produced love letter. To Street Fighter Two, it's called "Here Comes a New Challenger," and it is available now on Blu-ray, and it's going to be coming to streaming services hopefully very soon as well. So, if you're a big fan of Street Fighter Two, you can't miss out on this—a proper geek out with our guest Oliver Harper. He'll be on the show in around half an hour from now. Now, speaking of geeking out, I mean, God, over the weekend, how much fun was Friday night? Oh
2: yeah, it was absolutely amazing. We did a, we uh, we changed the date or the day of our Patreon hangout, didn't we? We we experimented to try it on a Friday because we get a lot of comments saying Sunday's difficult, which, you know, is understandable. It's kind of like the last night of the weekend. People have got work in the morning yeah. and people have got kids, family, you know, family people and stuff like that. We tried a Friday night and uh, we were a bit worried, you know, that, you know, a few of the familiar faces wouldn't make it and it'd be a bit of a quieter one, but really happy to report that, you know, a lot of our like frequent frequent backers and, you know, people who join us a lot, we're all, we're all present and we did get, a nice amount of new people on there who said they'd never been able to make the Sunday and uh, quite a few Americans on there,
1: which was really yeah, cool, th- wasn't it? I think the time worked out better for the Americans, actually, mm. because uh, Friday, you know, you can stay up a little bit later and yeah, yeah. Uh, do stuff. So that was really interesting to see. And I think it might be a plan to kind of maybe alternate them in the future mm. to try and hit different audiences and stuff, because... It's one thing, you know, having an international audience, um, you know, it all comes out on a Friday. Everyone knows that. But people are listening at different times in in different time zones and stuff. Really interesting
0: talk as well. We uh, covered a lot of things in there. Yeah, I mean, we always do. It's just a proper, you know, all get together, reminisce, show off systems, new pickups and all that. So if you haven't joined us for the Patrons Hangout before, um, now would be a very good time to sign up. And you will get an invite to the May Patrons Hangout that is coming up at the end of the month. And also, you can check out, if you join us as a Gold Tier member or above, our bonus podcast. Now, we do an extra podcast every single month. I think we're on like episode 36 of that now, the Retro Hour After Hours. And this time we talked about multiplayer games. Now, this was a fun episode to do. It was originally meant to be co-op, but um, (laughs) Dan Dan
1: changed it. But you know what? It worked well, actually, because a lot of the games that had multiplayer options also had co-op. And it's interesting, that kind of couch co-op thing that um, was missing from gaming for a long time when online happened. I remember at one point having a console where I couldn't actually do any, any couch co-op stuff it all had to be done online um so it's nice seeing that kind of local multiplayer come back and it's it's happened with a lot of new indie titles as well which is uh, also what we kind of had in the mix
0: Yes, if you're joining us on Patreon right now, you're going to unlock all of those previous episodes, and we'd like to welcome in some new members on Patreon this week as well. It's actually been a pretty decent week, I think—the best one in quite a while. So let's induct our new members into the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Hall of Fame, <laughs> and a massive thank you to Greg Gabatus Chris S, Jeff Shap and Ratty Allen, who all joined us over the last week. We massively appreciate your support, and if you'd like to get in there as well, and join our patrons community, all the details are at theretrohour.com. Right then, let's hop into this week's news stories, and uh, I must admit, um, quite often doing this podcast, things make me feel very old. This one that really hit home, that Jurassic Park celebrates its 30th anniversary Next month. Now, that was a movie that I mean, I don't know about you guys, but for me, it was probably the first film that I really remember just being totally obsessed with at the cinema. I think that some of that came out. I probably went to see Jurassic Park with different friends and relatives about six times. Yeah, there's
1: certain time. films that you go to the cinema to see repeatedly, like when they're out because they're just so good. And um Jurassic Park was definitely one. I think Lion King was also another one when I was younger. But um, for me, uh, interestingly, uh.
2: Jurassic Park was the first ever film I saw at cinema. So that's making me feel old as well.
0: <laughs> you know, I remember going with um, my mum. because I'd, you know, me and my brother had told her how good it was. We'd gone with friends and her aunties and uncles and stuff. And my mum, she, she doesn't take scary films all that well. But, you know, she liked the idea of it. She liked Steven Spielberg movies. So we came along and I remember a few of my friends from school. We sat about three rows in front of us. And my mum's there sitting between me and my brother. And you know the scene when... The raptors are trying to get in the room, aren't they? And mm-hmm. they're trying the door handles Then they get in. She screamed at the loudest you've ever heard. <laughs> Dug her fingernails into my arm. She was holding that hard. And like, literally my friends just, Burst out laughing. I got ripped at school for that for Well, day. I
1: remember people burst like <laughs> taking like seven-year-old kids in like, you like dinosaurs, mm-hmm. don't you? <laughs> and watching yeah. them come out like <laughs> absolutely mortified. <laughs> like just, you know, all the blood's gone from their face.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, incredible movie. And obviously they're still making them today. But I think nothing really compares to that first Jurassic Park film in terms of Cinematic experiences and just, you know, a true classic. And the special effects, I mean, you watch it today, I've got it on, you know, Blu-ray, still look incredible. Yeah, it was, it was really well done. Yeah, using those Silicon Graphics workstations that, of course, appear in the movie as well. And like anything that's that big, there was obviously a lot of spin-offs, including lots of video games. And it turns out, to honour three decades of Jurassic Park, there is a new collection of... Of Jurassic Park retro games from our good pals at Limited Run. Yeah,
2: so this, this is doing the rounds everywhere. Like, I've, I've seen it. It's, you know, it's even made it to the Metro, which is, you know, kind of news outlet for the UK, a big one. They're going to be, they've not kind of like done the full details of it yet or anything like that, but it's just coming over summer. They're going to be doing a huge release to celebrate Jurassic Park's 30th anniversary. Um, and in the picture they've released, they've not confirmed what games are going to be in it, but it's, probably going to be these games because they're in, in the picture they've posted, which uh, is quite funny. It's Samuel L. Jackson's character, the spoiler alert, the one who gets his arm ripped off by the Velociraptors, uh, but his arm missing the Velociraptor there in toy form. And uh, he's uh, in front of uh, a collage of uh, Jurassic Park games. So what's interesting about it, which me and Ravi were kind of talking about before, which we're both I'm, I think this is really cool, but disappointed to see. It's only the Nintendo
1: releases... It's a weird thing, like mm. Jurassic Park. So every single game that got released on for Jurassic Park, I think was different. And yeah. I don't know a franchise that had that much kind of variations in, you know, the game for that title. Mm. It would usually just be a port from one to the other. But um, yeah. they were very notably different. Like, And you are mentioning there's not versions there. The Mega Drive version was very different to the... Uh, mm super yeah. nintendo but also the amiga version which was
0: the one that i mm. played and loved um was also pretty different as well so uh mm. they were made by different companies there weren't they i think that the sega version was actually made in house by sega and the super nintendo version and the amiga versions were both made by ocean weren't they if i remember correctly uh, yeah. yeah yeah so was good to explain the variance the amiga version i always
2: saw that as like ravi was telling me about it earlier on um, it kind of jogged my memory. It was like the better version of the Super Nintendo version, wasn't yeah,
1: it? Yeah, so the Super Nintendo one seemed a bit zoomed in, where yeah. the Amiga version was like, it's probably one of the nicest looking games for the Amiga, yeah. um, I think. And uh, there's also differences with like the first-person shooter section, because that was the thing. It had a an above view, you know, you're walking around solving puzzles and stuff. But then it had this, like, alien versus predator kind of simple... <laughs> first-person shooter section, which is pretty yeah. amazing as well for a, for a, for a game at that
0: time. Yeah, You're thinking of 93, that was a year of Doom, wasn't it? So, mm. I mean, the FPS genre was just blowing up then. So it made sense that, you know, if they want to have a massive hit, you know, to kind of get some something of Doom in there, I suppose.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it was, it was Doom fever, wasn't it? And it's just funny that mm. I, I would have loved to have been like, you know, kind of like in the briefing for that, like, right, we need to make a Jurassic Park game. We want it as a top-down shooter for the Super Nintendo. So you play as uh, Professor Grant. You're shooting velociraptors and stuff. But when you go in a building, we it's a lot like Doom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, right, okay, kind of thing. But yeah, as we say, there's the Super Nintendo version in this picture. There's the NES version. Then there's the Game Boy version. But then also, there was a part two to Jurassic Park games for the Super Nintendo called The Chaos Continue. So this wasn't based on The Lost World. This was just a, a second Jurassic Park game because obviously Jurassic Park mm. was huge. So you get the Chaos Continues for the SNES and then you also get part two, the Chaos Continues for the Game Boy. Now, I don't know if you guys have played these ones, but they're more a run-along shooter, kind of like in the vein of Contra. Um, you know, kind like of side-scrolling. Side-scroller platform shooter. Yeah. Um, They were quite tough, if I remember rightly, because I've not played them in a long time. But as Ravi said, you know, the Mega Drive version for me was just so iconic. Like, There's
1: also... um. The uh, construction management building sim one. Oh <laughs> see, yeah, which yeah. was that like Jurassic Park? Uh, I think it's Operation Genesis. Where it was, yeah, it was like a kind of SimCity style mm. one as well. So mm. that's not included. Yeah, and then they still the- make
0: those now, don't they? That the latest Jurassic Park games are like that. Yeah, or Jurassic yeah. World ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. They do a lot of fun. But, yeah, I mean, it's interesting that it just seems to be the the Nintendo releases. But I think, yeah, it's probably going to be a bit of an ask because it was that many different ports mm. to that many different home systems that, you know, the, I guess they can't please everyone. And, you know, the thing with Limited Run as well is, I mean, I, we haven't got full details on this yet, but generally they put them out as physical. Yeah, they do. And it makes sense this yeah. is going to be a physical pack. So imagine <laughs> if they had to put the Amiga version and the, God, whatever else, 3DO version, all that in there as well. It's going to be a massive effort to get all a uh, and- tiger electronics version in there as well yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it is a nice uh, little celebration of uh, 30 years of jurassic park which is just nuts so um, we'll keep an eye on that should be available i think the movie celebrates its uh, anniversary next month in june so i'd expect to uh, see a bit more news around then hopefully so we'll keep you posted now this is something i was very surprised to see and I think we're talking about this actually on the um, the After Hours podcast, our bonus patrons podcast that we do, when we're talking about uh, multiplayer games. That it is very cool when you get a chance to play your retro systems online, usually via emulation these days. You know, I've played some Amiga games online with my brother, you know, using um, online services that kind of tricks him into thinking it's, you know, a couch co op game, but you're playing it over the net. However, this one is a new game for the Nintendo Entertainment System that actually you can play. Via the internet on your original NES hardware.
1: Well, you should know about this one, Dan, because you've just done a video on uh, playing stuff on the Amiga CD32 using one of these little
0: Wi-Fi chips. Um, They, I watched YouTube on my Amiga CD32 using one of these little chips, and and
1: and getting online, (laughs) didn't you?
0: Yeah. Oh, that's the thing. I mean, these these small little Wi-Fi chips are, you know, they're very inexpensive. You can get them off Amazon for like three quid each. Um, so, I mean, in terms of technology, they're very affordable and it makes sense that someone would do this. But I think here, the really impressive thing is actually coding a game that runs on the original NES and enabling that Wi-Fi chip in the cartridge to connect to an online service. Now, this is a game called Super Tilt Bro, which could be possibly inspired by another game that's got a similar kind of name, do you think, Joe?
2: Yeah, just a little bit. I mean, it it, play, it, it plays like Super Smash Bros from what I can see. And it features um, characters from the studio, or the games that are, are making this game. So it's being made by a, studio, a homebrewing studio, which are called Broke Studio. And it uses the fighters, you know, like in Smash Bros, like from different franchises, from games they've already made, if that makes sense. So it's yeah. like bringing that ones franchise. That they own. Yeah, ones that they own. And, and as Ravi says, and, and you say, it, it features the electronic board in there, the Wi-Fi chipset. So you can bring it online, and it, it does give you that local. You do get local gameplay as well as the online. But I just, I don't know the NES online. I mean, obviously, it, it it's it's not the NES online. It's the the game is online, so it's not making the Nintendo online. It's it's the game that's online. I I guess, is what's happening. But well,
0: you're still playing the game online, though, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, the Nintendo. You, but so technically, yeah. it is. Yeah, ten- I mean, to me, this is no different from you know when you used to add a a Wi-Fi connector onto you know via USB onto your Xbox 360. Yeah, it's just a hardware Wi-Fi chip.
2: Yeah, true. I guess you know you're not you're not wrong in that in that sense. Like you know it, it it is cool, and I'm like looking forward to seeing this. So you know, um, it comes out in April 2024, um, and it's currently on Kickstarter, but it's absolutely smashed its goal of 35,000. It's all currently on 60,000 at the point of recording this, with like 23 days left to go. So by the time this comes out, it'll be about what about 18 days on there
1: because we're recording a little bit early. So,
2: yeah, maybe this is the future for Nintendo. It's, Bring it's it online. interesting
1: because uh, I, I can imagine it's not going to take up much bandwidth. Like, No. It's not, <laughs> not going to be like high demand. Um, what they're kind it's Not going
0: to max out your one gigabit fibre connection, right?
1: No, and I'm hoping that it's not got like a central server, that there's a way to connect to other people just directly or a way for people to host their own servers so that if the, there is a central server, it doesn't go offline like on these big ones or if there is one they build it up and they add other games in there and stuff maybe you'll start to get like avatars on a on, on the <laughs> oddness uh, like like, like your or something yeah. like that yeah yeah
2: i mean they are saying I'm, I'm not too sure how this all works and stuff but they are saying there is going to be a netcode on a feature on there as well to kind of like um, it says to it's a rollback netcode to ensure there's as little disturbance as possible.
1: I, th- I think that's a kind of like a buffering thing. Oh, so okay, basically, where, if your connection goes down, then it's not going to cut. Um, oh, okay, cool. So it's going to have like a little bit of a buffer. That that's my
0: guess. I imagine looking at this though, because I mean, one good thing about it is it's open source, this game. Mm. So it doesn't mean that people, you know, will be able to modify if the servers went down, for example. But it does have um, matchmaking and matchmaking queues and, you know, stuff like that with other players around the world. So I imagine for that to work, for it to discover other players, it must be some kind of central server, I'd guess. But, um, you know, the fact that they're doing, making it open source will mean that if, if their servers ever do go offline, that it will be easy for someone to modify it and change it, I guess. Yeah. But it's a very cool idea and it just makes you think, I mean, you know, it uses the um, the ESP8266 Wi-Fi chipset uh, and an FPGA, which, you know, in terms of cost, if you're manufacturing these, only adds a couple of pounds, a couple of dollars on. You know, it's not that much. And I think it's a very interesting concept and it kind of feels like to me like there might be more of these coming out soon because it makes sense now with... The affordability of that you know to to people to to implement these kind of online modes as well onto yeah i guess i guess
1: if it's that cheap and you know people have done it it could go onto other systems um you know you could maybe you could have an ever drive that actually had one and that could be really useful you know yeah it's an interesting concept and i'm glad that we've kind of got to the point that wi-fi is this cheap that you can actually just put it inside a cart for the games
0: yeah, that is nuts, isn't it? So um, does it does look very, very cool. Uh, it is still running on Kickstarter uh, when the show comes out. So if you want to back that, I'll, I'll link it up in our show notes, along with the rest of the stories. Now, this was quite a, um, I must say, quite a surprising headline to see this week. Netflix is going to be shutting down its DVD rental business in September this year. Now, to me, that was surprising because... I assume they shut that down about 10 years ago, if I'm honest.
1: Oh, no, they've uh, still been running that, and they've been running it in America only. Right. So I actually went on the website a while ago, but I had to use a VPN to get on there. And, is that
0: the DVD.com, is it, their uh, it's, the website? It's kind of like
1: Netflix.com, I think, slash DVD or something. But, um, yeah, yeah it will only work if you're in America. Now, I think the reasoning for this in America is because the internet in certain regions was just so bad that it made sense you know there wasn't the massive like we have 4g coverage all over the country you know there's spots in america there's lots of people on different networks but also with something like starlink coming up now a lot of the rural places that didn't have the internet have now managed to get it and also to be honest it's probably going to be cheaper to uh, go out and buy a dvd for 50p then actually rent one and get it sent to your house and all of that at the moment um i think it was a necessity though uh remember america's a place where they've still got the last blockbuster so there's still there's still a kind of demand for um older media and stuff like when i went there i was amazed to go and find some video stores um that were still running and uh even when I went two years ago, there was a lot of places that I asked for about UHD DVDs, and uh, they didn't know what the hell I was on about. So, you know, it's it's it, it's, it takes longer to roll out something in such a big country.
0: What well, I remember signing up to because I don't think I ever used Netflix DVD rental service over here. I I think I signed up to LoveFilm. If you guys remember that, yeah. Yeah. I'm like a, a competitor yeah. to. Um, to Netflix. And I do remember getting them in the post because, I, I, you know, when you went to Blockbuster, if you didn't get it back, like, you know, within 24 hours, you'd get a fine. And the amount of times I did that at university and stuff, you know, we'd rent it out and like, has anyone took the video back yet? Oh, no, it's still on the side. What, well, the one we rented two weeks ago? And, you know, those late fees were just ridiculous. I think when stuff like this came along and you could kind of, you know, you could keep it as long as you want, you just put it back in the post. It was a free post as well. Um, it did just completely change the whole model before the internet came along and the streaming became affordable. Although, one thing I do kind of miss about it, and I mean, you know, I still do buy DVDs and Blu-rays occasionally, particularly if it's a movie that I really want to keep. Because, I mean, they just vanish off streaming services so regularly. Yeah. And, you know, you'll see something on there, but, oh, watch it next week, then it's gone.
1: Well, that's the thing. You know, um, streaming services don't have all the DVDs, and even a lot of them haven't kind of hit the conversion yet, so... You know, um often I'm searching for odd movies and stuff like that, and I'll I'll find a DVD rip more than I'll find, you know, uh, something available on the streaming service of that movie. And it's often like the niche stuff and um, you know, like the the, the kind of an odd sci-fi film from the nineties or something that yeah. they just don't have on streaming.
0: I guess the point is though that the selection that's offered by most streaming services is enough for most people they always going to find something there, you know, that will satisfy them to watch for an hour or two yeah. of an evening on there. Um, so you know, people aren't going out of the way to buy DVDs and stuff anymore. I was reading this article, though, on Engadget, and I'll, I'll link it in our show notes as well. And they talk about a service called Redbox. And I was trying to remember because um, I, when I lived in Leeds, probably around 2005, I lived in a place called Headingley, which was like, you know, where all the students basically live because it's right near the university. And I remember briefly a DVD vending machine Popping up just in the middle of like the shopping area there, and you could go at like two o'clock in the morning, you know, scan your your bank card or you know put your bank card in, put your code pin number in, and you could rent like basically DVDs via this vending machine.
1: We had that, but it was just a dude
0: with a big wallet
1: <laughs> that would be like <laughs> selling DVDs. The machine, yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but I remember thinking that was very cool because I mean, I could literally you know two o'clock in the morning, you know, when you. In your early 20s in Europe, or like with your mates, I was going to rent a film. To to be honest, the
1: more and more we're talking about it, the more and more I want a service like this in the UK because signing up for streaming is incredibly expensive, like all of the platforms. And sometimes I find that, you know, there'll be something that I really want to watch, but it's on like Apple TV or it's on some other service. And it gets so frustrating because you're kind of stuck behind this like barrier where something like this would be fun. It just getting something physically and putting it in. But uh, obviously it ju- just doesn't seem to be viable these days, but there might be a like a nostalgic... Uh, DVD renting service or something.
0: We should do it, guys. The retro hour DVD, retro hour DVD. Yeah, service. I've, I've probably got enough of them in my living room. Too, <laughs> yeah, <though>. same. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want there. <laughs> yeah, I mean you're right. Cause I, I do remember there was that big movement probably around 10, 15 years ago um, in America. They called it the the cord cutters movement, didn't they? Because you know satellite or cable bills were too expensive. So instead, we'll go with online services. And now, God, the amount of ones I sign up to, we pay way more. Yeah. All these subscription services than we ever did for Sky or Virgin Media. Yeah, so, uh, if, if you stacked
1: up all of the services and you paid for yeah. them, you'd be getting into hundreds and hundreds of pounds. And also now they're on different tiers as well. So even looking at Netflix, you know, you're paying more for 4K as well.
0: But yeah, so it is, uh, if you've been renting DVDs from uh, Netflix, it looks like the end of an era in um, September this year. Probably the first ever DVD they posted out was Beetlejuice. Oh, that's so a good film. See what, <laughs> what the last one will be in September. So, uh, yeah, imagine a few people want to kind of you know be on record as having that last of a rental. Now, this is quite cool to see something that's not very well loved in the retro gaming community, and I don't know if you guys have ever played it. We're talking about these Zelda games on the Philips CDI. Now, there's a couple on there. There was uh, Faces of Evil and Wand of Gamelon, and then there was a uh, Zelda's Adventure. They came out a couple of years later as well. Generally, not well remembered because they were dreadful games. Now you must have at least seen videos about this, Joe. You know you're a Zelda fan. Yeah. Any thoughts on those games?
2: Yeah. So uh, they're, they're kind of like I've not got a CDI. It's one of the, you know one of the consoles I, w- I would really like to have, but just you know. They're still really expensive. Um, I missed that, you know, when they went stupidly cheap for like 20 quid in the UK. Um, They're now like really expensive again. And the Zelda games in particular are really expensive. And let's be honest, it would just be there on the shelf to say, oh, look, I have the Zelda games for the CDI. I've obviously seen the famous AVGN episode about them, which kind of brought them to my attention. I think that was like 2008. That one probably came out, that classic episode. Um, And obviously now they're just kind of like, hailed as these like t- terrible games and kind of like you know a black spot in nintendo's <laughs> legacy <Yeah.
1: laughs>
2: where where they sided with phillips and uh rather than sony and licensed out zelda and mario and we got hotel mario so you know but it's always fun when you see these games kind of pop up again and you know they've been ported to another system or you know available to play online or all of a sudden stuff like that but yeah zelda's adventure of the three of the three of them i think it's regarded as like. I, I want to say the better one, like that's a big stretch, <laughs> you know, of like yeah. considering what, the competition, it's considering not the cons- a- competition, <laughs> but it, it's the more, you know, regard well-regarded one without, you know, giving it too much praise. Um, but this is interesting. It's been ported to the Game Boy. Uh, now this takes, it's got a completely different vis- visual stylization from the CDI version. Cause obviously the CDI, you know, as much as it pains me to say it much more powerful than the Game Boy. Um, at the and end graphically
0: it, i don't think that game looked too bad actually i think it had some quite decent. <laughs> it
1: looks like clip art kind
2: <laughs> <of>. <laughs> it does it does look like clip art it's you know that photo realistic like you know kind of like sprites walking around like a wheel a, a real world but it's like really bad photoshop that's what yeah,
1: kind of reminds th- for me for me it's like clip art mixed with an encyclopedia and
0: um, yeah <laughs> yeah that, that kind of vibe apparently the guy the guy that did the graphics on that, I mean, they did a lot of models. It was a guy called um, Jason Bakutis, and apparently he worked on um, movies like Critters 3 and Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare.
2: Ah, oh, nice. I like Critters 3.
0: <laughs> Not well regarded for its um, incredible visuals, Critters 3, for no. its high budget, but no, <laughs> wasn't no. that the movie that Leonardo DiCaprio appeared in first?
2: Yeah, that was his first ever film. Yeah, there you go. That's, yeah, there's yeah. your Critters 3 fact for the day. But yeah, um, the port of this, it's been made by a guy called John Lay, and He's ported it to Game Boy, but it adopts the Links Awakening style. So he says he's made it in GB Studio, and he's you know used some mods to GB Studio, which is like a you know a um, a program to make Game Boy games on. Yeah. It looks like to me he's used the Links Awakening game engine game engine to recreate Zelda's Adventure, which I haven't got a problem with. I think that's really cool, and I'm all for like you know new versions of Zelda game, of classic Zelda games. What what made me laugh about it though is in his video the side side comparison is how much quicker the Game Boy version is yeah. than the CDI version. Like you know with the scrolling, like from like kind of like frame to frame, when you go from like panel to panel on the Game Boy version, it's seamless, but on the CDI version, it just takes forever to load. Um, but he's done a really really good job of recreating like the game and recreating the dungeons and everything and. Obviously, the little Zelda sprite and stuff like that. I think it looked really cool and like
0: a real kind of like tasty bit of retro goodness, really. That third game, it's got some very, very cheesy FMV scenes. And I think I was reading one of these articles here that apparently the uh, the actress who played Zelda in the full motion video was actually the receptionist oh, from the game company. Brilliant. So it wasn't like, you know, not, not professional actors or anything like that. Uh, but yeah, this is the first time that I've seen because normally, you know, we talk about demakes, and mm. generally they're for a, a bit of tongue-in-cheek that make the game a lot worse. This is the first demake I've seen that legitimately makes the game a hell of a lot better.
2: Yeah, 100%. Plays better, probably looks better, it's quicker, probably more enjoyable, I hate to say. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, it it runs on original hardware as well, so, you know, there isn't a, a physical release of it or anything like that. It is just a ROM that you download onto, like, your EverDrive, um, or you just play, you know, on your computer on a on an emulator but it's available now to download and at the point of recording nintendo haven't haven't taken it down just yet but it's one of i don't b-
0: think nintendo want anything to do with this game they'll probably just leave it alone yeah they might they might just it. leave it alone remember to that coming out, yeah.
2: leave it alone to stop it getting any more attention like oh that's not based yeah. on one of our <laughs> games
0: <laughs> yeah i've got a feeling that's just been erased from all of their records so um it is free if you want to download it now so i'll link that up in our show notes to Now, this week's special guest, Oliver Harper, a proper geek out about Street Fighter 2, coming up in just a moment. Before we do that, let's give a quick mention to our incredible sponsor, our friends at ExpressVPN. Now, you know that we're big supporters of privacy, and um, I love this analogy with ExpressVPN. If you go to the bathroom, you know, it's it's only responsible that you close the door behind you. You don't want random -er passerbys looking in. So when you go online... It's also important that you close that virtual bathroom door because using the internet without a VPN, you know, you're exposed to everyone then. Your internet service provider in particular can know exactly which website you visit and what you've done on there. And we've heard these stories, particularly in America, of these big ISPs that sell all that information to the big tech giants, advertising companies, and they're using all that data to target advertising specifically at you, aren't they?
1: Yeah, so ExpressVPN, it's awesome. You can have it straight away on your phone, loading up, on your laptop. You know, I have it to auto start on my computer. And what it does is it creates a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. So your activity can't be seen by anyone. And it's really good if you're going to like a hotel, if you're traveling, if you're using airport Wi-Fi or like an unsecured network you've not been on before. It it just offers that extra bit of privacy and protection.
0: Well, that's the thing I mean, all you got to do is fire up Express VPN, one click, one button uh, to go back to that analogy as easy as closing your bathroom door so if you want to try expressvpn and um, we've got of course an incredible offer that you can claim right now and support the podcast by supporting our sponsors and um, let them know that we sent you by going to expressvpn.com slash retro and you will get an extra three months for free on top of a one-year plan so that's expressvpn.com slash retro and a massive thank you to our friends at expressvpn for their continued support Right then, let's get into this week's very special guest, talking all about his incredible new Street Fighter documentary, Here Comes a New Challenger, just some reminiscing in general about the 8 and 16-bit days, Come back to the C64, and lots of failed console chat as well, and his incredible YouTube channel. Our special guest, Oliver Harper, is next on the Retro L podcast.
3: For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile,
0: You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and let's welcome on this week's very special guest. And uh, I know we're just going to completely geek out over the next hour about all things retro, maybe a bit of movie talk as well, obviously lots of video game chat and uh, lots of fighting game talk, in particular Street Fighter 2. With that, this week's special guest who is a YouTuber, he's a director as well, let's just say an all-round fantastic retro content creator, Oliver Harper. Welcome to the show, Oliver. Hello, guys. Thanks for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to talk to you both. Yeah, very nice to have you on, and um, obviously we're going to talk about Here Comes a New Challenger, this real love letter to Street Fighter 2, probably the most comprehensive history of Street Fighter 2 that I've ever seen. Um, Your new film is out now. But before we get into all that, I mean, you know, we always like to kind of find out our guest's geek credentials if you like so i mean kind of going all the way back to, to day one i mean tell us your, your first kind of video game memory then where does it all kind of begin for you um strangely it was
3: actually on the nes um which wasn't you know a hugely popular console in the uk down to its sort of distribution wasn't it at the time mm. uh it was playing yeah just a, my friend got the super mario pack with duck hunt in like in 80 no it was 89 1990 and uh, that was a I think the proper, the first proper game I played. I mean, I must have played like maybe the, the odd arcade beforehand. Perhaps something like Shadow Dancer or something like that. But it was, uh, it was, I was, my, it blew my mind. And then I said to my dad, "I want a, a games console." And they bought me a Commodore sixty four. And um, so, with, so, was that the Commodore sixty four console? Not the, the no, console? no, it was a computer. Was Commodore sixty four, right? Okay. Uh, c- uh, computer. It was the Terminator two. Oh, nice. Pack. Right, so that would be ninety two. So it's a couple of years later, and um, I know I was like, "Oh, okay, I got a computer." But it was—I um, even enjoyed it. I know I loved the Commodore. I, you know, played. I got—I got all these secondhand games, like most people did, which were all kind of copied. Um, and I got this kind of disk drive and everything for through a friend. And, and the T two came on a cartridge, so there was no loading, which is great. And I kind sort of became addicted to video games, and also had to put up with the long load times, which is always frustrating. But it was um, like it was still selling games though C sixty four games like 92, 93, so you'd go into a shop and there'd be that little rack you'd spin around and there'd be like like Jaws on the Commodore. I found Last Ninja, I thought, get that. And that was like, oh, that blew my mind. And then it sort of moved on. My dad also randomly came home one day with a, with a ZX Spectrum, like with tons of games. Oh, well, wow. just, just you know, just by chance, just turned up with it. Here you go, have this. I was like, oh my god, so <laughs> more games to play, more loading to put up with, and um, and that also at that time, you know, around that period when Street Fighter 2 came out, and I sort of experienced it on the Commodore sixty four, and it was dreadful, but it was, uh, but I you know migrated onto consoles like most people did around that time. I got a Sega Mega Drive for Christmas, and having Sonic and Road Rash two was like mind blowing as well. And then I jumped onto the Snares, and then. I had this, after the 16-bit generation I picked consoles that did not perform well so I migrated to the 3DO <laughs> and, and Sorry, then, uh, you're like
2: the first person who's ever said that <laughs> <laughs> the chronological um, order is usually playstation n64 or maybe sega saturn yeah 3d <laughs>
3: <laughs> oh yeah yeah i got it from i got the 3do it was a gold star 3do from special reserve also well, you guys must remember them mm, yes and yeah. that was a Mac but you know that was every advertised in every magazine and i it came with fifa and because i got the 3do because again street fighter related mm. i saw super turbo yeah like, street, super street fighter turbo on it and i was like oh my god i was like this is arcade perfect mm. it looks amazing yeah because in cambridge where i lived um they had a an import shop called, I think it was like TARS Video Games or whatever. And they had, you know, I saw the Neo Geo CD. I saw the 3DO and I saw the early PlayStation there. And I think it was obviously super expensive. And, um, but I'd seen the. 3DO with Street Fighter on it, I was like, I've got to have that. So mm. at that point, 3DO had kind of come down in price, and I was literally the only person in my school who had a 3DO. Mm. And uh, then after that, I, I jumped onto the Sega Saturn because I loved my fighting games. And um, my friend had a PlayStation, and his older brother had a, had a Saturn, I still had my 3DO. But seeing the two consoles, like, I was kind of more intrigued by the Saturn. Yeah. It was arcade mm. kind of ports and stuff, and playing, seeing Guardian Heroes. And and then you got Street sneak fun Alpha, I was like, I've got to have this machine. I, I've got to jump onto that one. I can't, I don't want the PlayStation because I' trying to do Fireballs with the PlayStation Joypad just gave me horrendous crap. So yeah, I got to Saturn and then went to Dreamcast and then I kind of stopped for a bit. So yeah, so after 16-bit generation, I just kind of pick, kind of picked the wrong machines that didn't really stick around for long. Yeah, it, um, but I loved it. I didn't care. I loved it, them. It's so. interesting that you said the wrong machines, but if you were
2: if you're into arcade games, particularly fighting games, you've got X-Men, Children of the Atom, Marvel vs. Capcom, you know, for Dreamcast, all those kind of pixel perfect 2d games they were the right consoles for that
3: if that was what we were into do you know what i mean oh yeah for sure for sure but i i, I say like i, I suppose pick the wrong consoles it was just mainly down to frustration of being able to find these games in a in easy fashion because you'd Saturn was fine until the end, but when you got like you went to game or something in nineteen ninety eight, it was like the Saturn was just a tiny little Mm. section in the corner where you had like oh, Quake was out, Sonic R and and Duke Nukem three D I've got all those, but it was kind of like you ask what's coming out next and they go, Oh like Shining Force Three, that's kind of it. I'm like, Oh Mm. Oh, damn. You know, so yeah, that was, um, then, then the Dreamcast came out. And I, w- one of the interviewees in in my, in Here Comes New Challenger, Damien Um, he had the same experience as me because he had a Saturn. We both had ours chipped to play import games. We had the 50, 60 Hertz switch. And we traded all our games and the console for a Dreamcast and one game mm. when it came out in Japan. And I, Having a Dreamcast like first before anyone else was just like, you know, everyone wanted to pile around my house just to see it in action. And it was, it was incredible, but it it was one of those regrets I always had. And I still talk about it. It's like, I should have kept my Sega Saturn collection because I had everything I had Deep Fear I had Panzer Dragoon Saga I had Radiant Silver Gun um, all the games that are rare because I'm, I'm only kind of saying this really because if I kept it then I could sell it Yeah, <laughs> for a lot yeah. of money <laughs> you know, that's everyone's regret really I should have
0: kept that yeah. I have sold that those games were just you know, you know, didn't know they going to be worth, worth money in the future then games. did we I know yeah, we had no idea <laughs>
3: you know, so if you like went back in time you go want well, to go back in time buy those Star Wars merchandise and just sell it in the future <laughs> you know make a killing but you know it's, uh, yeah that was kind of my experience with it and, and during that period I you know I'd i bought all the video game magazines i was you know st- still i'd say pretty knowledgeable about video games also in the case with movies as well hence why I'd sort of i sort of jumped onto youtube to review films which was kind of the same sort of passion i had with video games but video games you know when i started doing it it wasn't really a thing of mine to sort of like hey i'm going to talk about video games it was just more about i found movies kind of more interesting mm. to discuss at that
2: point yeah that that was going to be our set, our next question so our next question was really you know were you a gamer first before kind of like I wouldn't say a film critic because obviously I guess when you're a you're a child you're not necessarily a film critic but I guess for you were you <laughs> no. were you more interested in film than you were games because obviously you initially kind of started with film when you started your, your YouTube channel
3: yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I was definitely more into video games and talking about them, mm. and it was, it was definitely it was more of a social thing as well. Mm. to Have your friends come around and play video games, but yeah, move, I always yeah, of course I love films. I was obsessed with Star Wars and the Superman films. Every I think for every British child of my of our sort of generation, um, like Bank Holiday Mondays, Christmas time, uh, Easter, there's always going to be. Like the big, the big, the big movies are always right. on, right? And you always want to sit and watch them. But there's always, like, there's always be a Star Wars film on, there'd be a Bond film, there'd be a Superman film, every kind of seasonal sort of holiday. Right. So that was kind of my my youth of kind of observe, you know, being obsessed with the TV guide and finding what's going to be on and taping them, and and then yeah, just kind of I wasn't really obsessed about the making of the movies until I sort of became like into my late teens and started doing sort of film studies. It was kind of media studies at the time in like Cambridge where they had better facilities than some of the other more expensive 6 form colleges. But yeah, I was learning, you know, like to put movies on a super VHS and trying to edit that. It was a nightmare. Um, and then we got the first digital camera came in and using Final Cut Pro, the first version of it. That was just like made everything super easy. But then I, you know, at the same time I was working at game, you know, in Cambridge. So I, you know, I, weirdly, once I started working there, I lost interest in video games. <laughs> to be honest, it was, <laughs> the dream cast, job, the dream burnt me. You know, what <laughs> I mean, it's like, oh, it failed. I'm, I'm not doing I'm wasting more money again. Uh, but yeah, it was fun working at game, but they paid well, and um, so I had sort of I stuck with that for a bit, and then like, thankfully, I, uh, Cineworld had opened up in Cambridge, uh, and I got the off got a job of being a projectionist, so I could watch movies for free and preview them and put the films together on 35 millimeter And you know it was a sort of dream job that didn't didn't pay that well to sort of make it any sort of career but yeah once i once they got rid of like the whole i was there for like seven years and then they made this kind of switch from 35 millimeter projection to digital and that was kind of the yeah. end of projectionists so once avatar came out and they went the 3d boom and And they were like, "Mm, okay, we're going to get rid of all these projectionists. And um, yeah, we all got kind of laid off. But, you know, I got a good redundancy pay. Then during that period, I was like, what the hell am I going to do? I worked for Jagex for a little bit you know, in Cambridge. I didn't last long. <laughs> That's another story. But, yeah, so at that time, I was kind of thought, well, I might as well just do this whole YouTube thing because I'd been watching, like, other movie critics. I'll see the, the, that guy with the glasses or something, you know, Nostalgia Critic. And there's, I'll see James Rolfe, to, you know, reviewing video games. and um, But I liked the sort of more educational side of things because I was big into home format stuff like Laserdisc and DVD. And weirdly, I got into Laserdisc when DVD came out because everyone was getting rid of their Laserdisc stuff for like peanuts because they want to jump onto a new format. So I grabbed Laserdisc, got all these discs for, for you know, little money and also got into DVD as well, you know. But I was obsessed with all the special features and making ofs and commentaries and criterion collection stuff. So that was, I wanted to sort of take some of that and then put it into sort of a, a video. And weirdly, my first video was on Superman 4, <laughs> you know, uh, which was, you know, a complete, like, mess of a movie. And, you know, um, probably a film Christopher Reeve would, you know, bless him, he's no longer with us, but would also want to forget about. But mm. it was had an interesting production, you know, really fascinating. So that was kind of my first kind of into it. And, and at the time, you know, it's difficult to sort of get, things out. Like I had to sort of share it on different forums and stuff. And then more and more people watched it and uh, and asked me to sort of continue doing it. So that essentially became my sort of, well, it took about three years to sort of make any money and make it say, hey, I could do this
0: for a living. What year did you start uploading on YouTube, Banks? I know you're, I'm looking at your channel now and mm. you registered in 2006. Obviously that was yeah. very early. Oh, oh mate, um, I
3: was doing some awful like trailers, putting them out and just random clips and not even caring about copyright. And I did like a weird montage of Caddyshack. I got like <laughs> I love Caddyshack, one of the funniest movies, but yeah. I just put all the best bits together and shoved it on YouTube. And then when Howard Ramus died, it just shot up in views. I was like, whoa, but I don't own that video. So, uh, but it was, it was like 2011. I said, okay, well, I'm going to do, I'm going to review Superman 4. And that kind of went from there. So everything beforehand is just kind of this weird stuff. Like most people do. If you go on everyone's channel who's who's been around for a long time, the early stuff, just is kind of weird crap.
0: <laughs> you know, you know, you know I, I'm pleased that YouTube removed that. You know, you could sort them by age before they turned <laughs> yeah. up recently. Yeah. So you can't yeah. easily find those first videos exactly, now. Which, uh, yeah. as, a, as a fellow YouTuber, that's quite a blessing. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so uh, you mentioned that it took a few years for it to kind of take off before it kind of became, you know, a realisation of like, oh, I can do this as a job. What, was there a particular yeah. video that kind of made your channel blow up or was it kind of like a slow burn, you know, like, you know, every mm. video was kind of getting like a decent amount of traction or was there like one particular boom, this is great. It's
3: going well now. It's kind of hard to remember that Joe, actually. It, it was, um, it was just kind of like consistently the views are doing quite well. Mm. My channel weirdly has always had a slow burn. Mm. Like it's always, I'm always getting subscribers, always getting extra views kind of each month. It's never, nothing's ever gone viral. Um, which kind of is a plus sometimes and also a bit of a not really a benefit because mm. if you do something that goes viral, then people expect that same thing over and over again. And you cannot, because viral is just kind of random often and you can't really keep up that momentum. So I uh, just stuck to what I, New best and sort of more and more people watch it. And you, it's funny sometimes that when you, when there's a sequel coming out or a remake, people will go look on YouTube looking for the first one or like a review of the original film or the, mm. you know, whatever. And the views just kind of just skyrocket. Uh, like Rambo five came out and like everyone watched the first of rev- my review on the first movie. So you kind of, and you no, know, at the time it done okay views, but you see this kind of weird trend where things just jump up and, and to, to figure out what would kind of sort of, you know, saw my channel go up maybe something like terminator or robocop that often yeah those sort of subjects often still have still such a huge following and people just you know always endlessly talk about terminator franchise or robocop franchise and um if you kind of cover those and do it well uh, people will just come piling over to watch it
0: and I love the fact that you you know you go really in depth with your analysis as well, mm. um, and it kind of what what inspired you to take that kind of approach to content creation rather than just being a you know some channels just kind of do review stuff and it's quite basic. But you actually you know really analyze the movies.
3: Yeah, yeah. I wanted to do something different. That was kind of a, instead of someone just sitting in front of a camera holding a movie and just talking about it for half an hour. I thought that was thunderously dull. And I like the edited stuff. And you know I wanted to sort of you know I liked making trailers and and so forth. So I wanted to have have the the structurally the the reviews have a trailer that i've made and then it will sort of go into that you know how the film was kind of received at the time and then sort of go into the production side of things just to provide something extra it wasn't just like oh i'm just going to tell you my thoughts on this movie for like 15 minutes that'll be that'll be it people still do that people and people find success with that but i want to sort of do offer something more and A couple of key things where people were missing was, one, no one talks about the soundtrack to movies, which are extremely important to the success of these films. If you take out out the score out of Star Wars, it doesn't work at all. And also the visual effects side of things. But one thing I always enjoyed, because I loved video games, was talking about the licensed games that came out based on these films. Mm. And no one ever explored that in a review. And so it was just trying to – it was my idea to try and grab everything that was available and just put it into one video. Um, and I, I often throw in like clips from Siskel and Ebert, which everyone hates, <laughs> you know, because because those critics like pan the movie at the time. People are like, oh my god, how did they dare say that? It's like, well. They were watching, like, 50 movies a week, you know what I mean? And, and, like, this movie that came out that we all love, like, I don't know, Never Ending Story or something, they thought was maybe a load of rubbish because it, what, they were adults and they were kind of, you know, different it's different mindset. Um, I would I always love to include more Barry Norman because he was a little bit more level-headed sometimes. Mm. But the BBC just don't have – you see old clips pop up, people just shoved on YouTube. But there's trying to grab something from him to sort of see what he thought at the time was always difficult. Mm. But yeah, so it, was, it went from there, really. And it was kind of the last day, no, the last chunk was kind of like my, my critique on it and sort of reflection of the time and my experience with the film. And it's always been the movies I pick are always something that I experienced when I was younger, generally. I mean, some people just fire out so many requests. I'm like, I don't know that movie. What's it, you know, and people want me to sort of cover it in a very energetic way, perhaps to something I, I grew up with. But, well, you can't do that. You know, it's, it's, you can't review a movie that perhaps is 30 years old and do it with such enthusiasm as for something you'd never seen before, you know. So, yeah, that was that was kind of like my approach to it. Um, and it's sort all of, it sort of evolved over time. You know, mm. things get better. You, you get better at voiceover at the beginning. My voiceover was very sort of very quiet and kind of uh, monotone in a way. And it takes takes time in practice. You can't just talk into a, a microphone and sound good. You know, you have to... It takes time. Like Dan, you know, you've got a very very sort of broadcast radio voice when you do this stuff. So, it's you know, it takes takes a bit of practice, doesn't
0: it? Yeah, definitely a craft that you've got to build up over the years. Yeah, the, the more you do it, I guess, isn't it? You get used to it. it. More, yeah, you get more know. confident with it,
3: you know. So
2: kind of like, how do you think, like, right, I'm going to make a video now on Superman or a video on the Highlander <laughs> board game. Like, how, how what's, your, what's your approach? Is it just kind of stuff from your childhood? Like, you say, like, you know you're going to be enthusiastic about it, like, or is it a case of, mm. you know, RoboCop. There's so much kind of to talk about there. I can you can talk about the games and stuff as well. Like, do you kind of look at content or do you kind of look at your own experience?
3: Uh, a bit of both, mm. Joe. It was um, I. I don't try and plan ahead too much. Yeah. Something some some videos are just done on a quick whim. You know, like the Highlander board game. I thought, oh, Highlander. It's movie based, license based. Let's play that with Stuart Ashen, He'll love yeah. that. And um, that was kind of a quick thing. And in the case of like RoboCop, I can always, yeah. I could easily go back and redo those reviews because they're like maybe six, seven years old now, and to sort of expand upon it. So there's always that option. But also, like, there's a new video game coming out. I could review that because it's it's movie based and it kind of fits with my channel. It gives me actually it gives me quite a bit of variety because I can. There's always movie licensed stuff out there, so you can always you cover it and and people wouldn't feel it's kind of a weird different thing. But obviously, there's a last percent, percentage of my audience who just want one thing. Mm. A retrospective review on this movie that movie uh, if you try and stray away too far they get a bit upset and no one watches it but a lot of those kind of things i do on the side are always just to, just for fun so mm. it's sort of just to keep my mind kind of like fresh and not just get bored of what i do um, so yeah it's it's i it, sometimes i know, for example you mentioned superman there's a new 4k a release of all the films uh, uh came out in the uk so i reviewed that that's gonna be live like tomorrow yeah so um yeah there's always something i can just kind of pull out and go oh i'm gonna review this and at the last minute and um and do sometimes sometimes do a quick turnaround but also i review new movies as well yeah. um which uh always kind of a weird one because i think when it comes to new films i think a lot of people go to certain youtubers just for that new, yeah. new movie stuff where me, it's kind of like, well, not everyone always tunes in. If you're lucky in a way where you it's out in the UK before America, it just explodes. Yeah, like I think one of the Terminator sequels was like um, Dark Fate was out in the UK before America, so everyone like piled in to hear what I thought. And um, a lot of the time, <laughs> it's funny stuff. Like when you do your regular content, you get you, you get the regular audience coming, but when you do a new film you just get the random people come in and they get so upset because you either liked or disliked the movie. So it just <laughs> random people like who, who is this, you know? Um, so yeah, it's, that's kind of like, it's fun just having that variety on my channel where I can, I can explore video games and movies.
0: Well how do you approach the the video game episodes I mean you mentioned Terminator there and that's you know what, what fantastic video on your channel that you did recently a mm. uh, Terminator video games retrospective so do you approach them in a similar way to the movies or is it different
3: Yeah I do yeah I do Dan. I, do, I approach them in a very similar way because structurally they're they're kind of the same um I create a trailer at the beginning that kind of uses voice clips from the movie but I cut it to the video game and the video game's got some great if a video game's got some great cutscenes I'm like yes I can create something interesting with this um, and the Terminator one well I, I first did Robocop and I thought that was kind of kind of interesting to do people had done videos similar but they're just showing you footage from each conversion I'm mm. like well that's kind of it's fine but it's not you're not, you're not learning anything and we Retro Gamer I had you know covered um, Robocop and, and explored some of the conversions where they give you like a bit at the bottom, don't they? Like a little blurb bit telling you which which port was on what machine and what the what the quality was like. So I kind of wanted to take that and kind of expand it into a video and and um and it's always a little bit more difficult when you've got the different ports and trying to provide some information about them. Um, well, Terminator, I was kind of lucky where you had a lot about the Sega ports and there's a bit about. The, you know, the Sunsoft version for the term that never came to be and which is kind of a weird cutscene kind of game, which would just, just bizarre. And there's quite a lot, quite a bit on the Bethesda version of the very early DOS game. Mm. And so I thought like, well, okay, well, that did extremely well. Just randomly, I didn't know it would do that well. And I also explored Batman conversions as well of the, of the 89 movie. And there's yeah. also a lot of information out there from the ocean staff, like we've talked about it, like possibly Bill Harbison, you know, who's a great guy. Uh, talking about the artwork for the game and and I'd uncovered stuff he forgot he drew so that was uh, like I think (laughs) think the Atari ST port has like more sort of random cutscenes in the game and uh, which which surprised me because usually the the Amiga version was the one everyone sort of favoured so yeah it's kind of yeah it's just kind of fun tapping into that because I had Batman on the C64 I loved it I thought it was great even though like every other sprite in the game outside of Batman looked terrible. <laughs> but, you know, it was easy. It was, so, it was so easy to complete. So I was like, oh, a Commodore game I could complete, you know. And most of them were just like, impossible <laughs> to, to, to complete the game. But, yeah, in the case of Terminator, it, yeah, it was, yeah, try and structure it in a way where you can break it down into each port and what you can provide in terms of information. And at the end, just do an overall summary of what you think is kind of the best and worst of these of these games. And I want to do Terminator 2 because that's a, that's a lot of interesting ports as well. But I don't think outside of the arcade game, most of them are, are a bit rubbish, like Ocean's T2 conversions to the Micro Machines and, this, and the Amiga are just awful games. Yeah. Um, there's yeah, a wasted be life,
0: forgotten actually. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah.
3: <laughs> um, yeah it's a wasted life. I mean,
2: I'd be interested in that video, but I'm obsessed with Terminator. So, but yeah, you know, when you're like outside of the arcade, there's not many good ones. And I was like, there's the Sega CD one. And I'm like, wait, that's Terminator One. <laughs> like, yeah, 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 it's weird. Isn't yeah, it? it's weird, yeah. Weird. My, my mind went straight away to the, ter- the the original Terminator game. So, um, but our next question, uh, really interesting one, that I've been dying to ask you is, you've interviewed a number of big names, big actors, big filmmakers on your channel over the years. You know, who's been your favorite person to interview and why?
3: Weirdly, um, I think Peter MacDonald, who was, who, who directed Rambo 3. Okay. Um, but he's also second unit on like all the action movies pretty much for the 80s and 90s, 80s and 90s, like Tango and Cash and Batman, uh, Batman and Robin, weirdly. Uh, he'd, you know, he, but he also he was the camera operator on Superman the movie. So I was like, oh, okay, right. Well, I need to talk to him. But Peter is, like he doesn't hold back he just like constantly swears mm. and is very dry wit very british man so it was a joy talking to him about stuff and he was just very open and and um Kind of doesn't take any sort of rubbish from anyone, yeah. especially Van Dam, because he worked with Van Dam a lot. And he's yeah. just like, "Well, if you're going to mess around, you know, I, you know, you're going to be standing around for ages on set." Yeah. So, also, um, I interviewed Brad Fidel, you know, the, the composer of the Terminator scores, who mm. was really interesting, super nice. I remember being there, like I was in London because he came over to visit his daughter, who lived in the UK, and um, and he was like standing, I, was, I was talking to him, and then he suddenly got an email. From someone, he looked at it and he goes, "Oh, another interview request." No, nah, I can't be bothered to do that. I was like, "Whoa, that could have been me." <laughs> it's yeah. like I was <laughs> like, "Oh, I felt so lucky to talk to him and um, about his work." He just wasn't interested in coming back to be a composer. He'd done his thing. I asked him about Terminator sequels and Terminator Four and Five. He said he had an interview to come back and score one of the new movies. I think it was Terminator 4. And he didn't like the script. He thought it was okay. And they just didn't hear back from him. So, so the filmmakers were trying to lure him back mm. to do the music and he just didn't want to. And I said to him, well, you know, with James Horner has sadly passed away. Uh, of course he did Avatar. Um, I said, would you, I said, as a sort of random thing, if, if James Cameron had said to you, "Hey, do you want to do Avatar 2? He was like, "No way." He was like, I was like, no, I'm not doing that." It's just like you've just got to come back in and learn all the new technology and all the new machines, and it's like, no, you wouldn't do that. But I just, yeah, he was just a really nice guy. So, and I was, throughout, the, you know, the course of, in particular, in Search of the last action Heroes documentary, where I interviewed quite a lot of the sort of the big names, it was, it was kind of. Uh, unfortunately in a way where I couldn't be there so someone else would interview them so all the questions are kind of mine yeah. and my co-writer time and things but it's just down to sort of the logistics of someone you know the is the budget there to fly me out to mm. LA to interview this person where we've already got someone there yeah. Yeah. Who's, who's got who's a camera base so yeah the, when you look behind it all it's just like oh you know I, I could have been there but you know budget limitations yeah. always puts those things into question.
2: Yeah and at, and at the end of the day I guess you've got to put The budget first, I guess, you know, as as amazing as that would be to fly out to LA and. You know, in interview, you know, I'm trying to think of somebody right now, but, you know, (laughs) it it, it could be a dream come true. But I guess you've got to put the work for first and the documentary first, if that makes
3: sense. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Because essentially, someone who's making a documentary, essentially, they're they're just just directing it as kind of a more of a glorified editor, Yeah, you know. But at the time, with that anyway, it was very much editor. But with my following project, it was very much like, okay, I'm going to direct this because we've got a lot of B-roll to shoot. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, I can imagine. So you know, another question kind of relating to that is, how do you kind of get hold of some of these big names? Because you've, you know, some some of them not so massive, some of them huge, like Stephen D'Souza, Shane Black, Ronnie Cox. How do you go about getting a hold of these people and you know booking in the interviews with them?
3: Well, in the case of the action documentary I made, we had a uh, a guy in America, a guy in America called David Weiner, who was able to sort out through sort of get few few connections because he had already. Uh, worked for like a sort of a, a publisher, like a, a newspaper, I think. Um, I'm trying to rack my mind of what he did previously. I think he worked for like Fangoria as oh, okay, well. Yeah. So you, you also develop those sort of connections, and um, he sort of managed to get Shane Black and Paul Verhoeven and my co-writer, Tim and Sing, who'd written a book about like action stars who who uh, essentially played the bad guys. It's called his book was called Born to Be Bad, mm. and he'd already interviewed a bunch of people, so he had all these connections, and just like, okay, well. Time you've interviewed them before, you can just do it again, you know, and, and also with the questions we've kind of formulated. So that was kind of a bit very straightforward, but other ways you have to sort of go through. I mean, sometimes you just go through IMDb Pro. Yeah. But it costs a lot of money. It's like 150 pounds a year. And if, and if you forget to cancel your subscription, there's a bit of a shock <laughs> when, you, <laughs> when you see your bill. He's like, what What the hell? Where's this come? Where's my money gone? But yeah, it will have their agents on there or PA or whatever, and you can reach them that way. You oh. know, um, some some interviewees want to be paid, some don't. But it's also okay. often a kind gesture to pay them a little bit of money, mm-hmm. that's for their time. And you know, once you know, and in the case of Stephen D'Souza, he's just like it was such an easy thing because he's he's always willing to have a chat about his work and he's a lovely guy mm. and you know he could, he could just talk like a machine mm. about Street Fighter and what he's done and it makes it a little <laughs> bit difficult to edit he talks quite fast if you, if you have two cameras set up you're fine but we didn't um, <laughs> but yeah he was you know so he's trying to also when you interview people who talked about movies or their work over and over again they often fit their often repeat their same story so you've got to. Mm. so you if you're going to make something new you've got to try and break them away from that traditional kind of narrative they deliver so you have to sort of ask questions that aren't really asked of them before so i knew that with some of the people i was going to interview so i sort of like okay right let's let's chat about this we haven't chat about that before like street fighter for example let's talk about the latest that came out let's talk about the music videos the soundtrack not just like oh, Van Damme was having problems and Raul Julia was kind of suffering from cancer. Those stories are vital, but you want to sort of,
0: you know, get the interviewee to sort of explore something else. You know, kind of be going beyond your YouTube channel. I mean, um, you know, over the last few years, you've made some really in-depth documentary films. I mean, I'm sure a lot of our audience have seen In Search of the Last Action Heroes. Mm. So how do you go from making, you know, YouTube videos to these full-on documentaries that, you know, released on so it's like Amazon Prime? How, how did you mm. make that move? Well, it was... Um uh, I had
3: real no, I didn't, I didn't have a notion of sort of making a documentary, um, like feature length or anything that would, would be officially released. But a, a guy called Robin Block, who runs, now runs sort of Creator VC, who later produced like In Search of, uh, Darkness and In Search of Tomorrow. He, he come from that sort of TV world and he was a patron of mine. And he, he said, and I made the, the Superman four documentary, uh, about the shooting locations and how they use Milton Keynes for Metropolis and stuff. And and my friend, Tim Partridge, who I'd known for years, and we were both kind of knowledgeable, knowledgeable, about, knowledgeable about the films. And Tim had directed it, and I'd sort of written it with him. And and um, that that really impressed Robin, because uh, it was very TV-like. Felt like a TV program, right? Well, on YouTube, it's difficult to find stuff that is often of TV quality. Um, obviously now, I think, Camera equipment's getting better and better and cheaper. And so people can shoot stuff in 4K and it'll look great, but it's not really TV. Mm. It's more of just a sort of, this looks good. So Robin had seen that and said, like, said, Hey, look, I've got this TV experience. Let's make a documentary. What would you like to make it on? And I was like, Oh, I don't know. Uh, we sort of looked at what this, what was popular on my channel and it was mostly action movies. So we said, let's make us, let's make a documentary about eighties action and nineties action. Right. Um, originally Robin was just like, just focus on eighties. I was like, well, no, 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 because. I want to see it progress because the 90s still had great movies. So we thought of the idea of like, okay, let's crowdfund this. I've never I'd never done crowdfunding before, didn't know how it worked. So Robin sort of handled that and I sort of just pushed out the PR for it. And it did very well. Mm. And so we sort of went from that, gave us the budget, gave us the and obviously time and sing came on board. You know, that's everything that sort of slotted into place. And um, and it's sort of and originally we had one editor on board. Fantastic guy, but he just wasn't kind of, it wasn't his thing, the action genre. So I took it off his hands and I kind of re-edited it with a colleague of mine and we sort of reshaped it. We wanted it to be very much like Electric Boogaloo, like the Canon Films documentary, which was like yeah. a great celebration of that 80s kind of like high of them finding success through like Breaking and like, um, like Van Dyne movies, Chuck Norris movies, then collapsing because they spent too much money making He-Man the movie, you know. So yeah, I want to have that same energy, and we sort of kind of kind of captured that with the actual one I felt. Um, so once that was sort of came out, we we um, spoke with distributors, and and Robin had sort of arranged with Gravitas Ventures to sort of sell it to them. So I don't own it, you know, I won't own it for another. They got, weird, it's a weird deal. They got it for like fifteen years, they own it or something like that. Right. Um, so it's kind of that's how it... yeah, they, they Gravitas take a huge chunk of the ownership. Um, so they sort of like obviously it as an American company and then they sort of sold it onto other platforms. So that's why it's on Amazon and you can find it on, you know, other streaming platforms around the world, but I don't, I don't make any money off it, <laughs> you know, it <laughs> sure was it was a shame. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that was kind of, that was, that was a lot of fun making that. It did well, a good, you know, it got good reviews and, um, and that sort of gave me the confidence, confidence to go out on my own to make my next documentary. Because once you've sort of gone through the process of making these things, it's kind of, it kind of it kind of straight it's kind of straightforward in that way. It's still it's still a challenge though, being you know trying to advertise a crowdfunding kind of uh, production because you still, you still have to you still have to have that skill set of being good at marketing. And it's yeah. again, it's not something I'm, I'm that highly skilled in, and it's you know it requires specialists to do that so it's always uh that's always a challenge i think with 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 youtubers where they're one thing where they're kind of they're good at critiquing stuff but then you step out in a kind of the real world where you've got to sort of sell something or try and promote something in a very sort of you know in an an effective way it requires a you know a lot more talent there to sort of you know to get it pushed forward so yeah i have you know with with the street fighter 2 documentary here comes a new challenger it's very much like i surrounded myself with Filmmakers who are very talented to sort of cushion the blow, so I, I wasn't doing everything, but ultimately I kind of ended up doing a lot more work than I than I originally intended.
0: Well, let's talk about the new film then, because I mean, both Joe and I have watched it and absolutely loved it, and anyone that loves Street Fighter 2 is going to really enjoy this movie. I mean, it, it's over what two and a half hours long. It's a mm. a real love letter to Street Fighter 2. So kind of give us the lowdown and the background on this and what can viewers expect from it?
3: Well, the, sort of the background of it all was during the course of making the action documentary, I was editing the sort of section on the Street Fighter movie because it's about Van Damme and Steve D'Souza's talking about his experience with it. And I thought, wait a minute, what, it, w- it, w- it would be great to make a documentary about Street Fighter 2 and focus on that early 90s period. And once a, you know, I finished the you know, in search of the last action heroes, I thought, okay, let's try and focus on this street Fighter thing. what could, what's kind of missing out there that people need to know, or, you know, cause I'd, you know, you fellow YouTubers, you know, have covered street fighter two, either just as the, the, either just, just the game or like the movie or whatever. Um, but no, and I think Capcom had also commissioned a documentary as well, a number of years ago, I think it's called I am street fighter or something like that. And it was really focused on the tournament aspect, and all the pro gamers, which is also an important part of street fighters history, but to, it didn't speak to me at all. Like I didn't know anyone like in the nineties who was a pro gamer who went to tournaments. It was very niche. And, um, so I thought, okay, well, wh- what was my experience with Street Fighter? So it's all about, like, you know, playing the arcade, like either like a laser quest or like a fair that would come to your town. You had, um, like, reading the magazines about it, experiencing the, you know, the game on the Super Nintendo. Um, obviously, then the merchandise came out. It was all that kind of, that 91 to 95 period was really all Street Fighter. You know, every magazine covered it. If it wasn't on the cover, why wasn't it? You know what I mean? Like, I think Julian Rignall sort of said, like, it was always used to promote the magazine because it, it does sell issues. So let, let's try, I thought to myself, let's try and capture that sort of moment in time and and see if like, you know, because I, I pitched the idea to other people who also had a similar love for Street Fighter 2. And they're like, yeah, this is great, because this is actually what I remember. So in the course of documentary, like, you know, I, I made sure I covered the magazines, made sure I covered the player's guide, videotape, even the books, um, obviously the G.I. Joe merchandise that was kind of revamped to be Street Fighter. Um, everything kind of just around the video game as well. Was, that was important to me, that what surrounded Street Fighter 2 the game and um to sort of make it sort of continue its own, continue its like longevity over those over these years. Because I remember, you know, come like Super Street Fighter 2, everyone was like Oh, there's four new characters. Oh, cool, cool, cool. And then you play it and the game's, oh, the game's really slow. And like and it was super expensive as well on the Mega Drive, like 60 quid, my friend mm. paid for it. And um and that was that was also another kind of thing I wanted to talk about was like what if, if video game magazines were promoting these things, giving it high scores, but also maybe understanding that the there the, the was there was a lot of kids, you know, reading these magazines who didn't have a lot of money, can they you know they feel somewhat guilty and sort of kind of promoting this game was like £60 and their parents had then got to buy it you know um, I remember the guilt of trying to persuade my mum to buy Super Street Fighter 2 on the snares for £50 and, and they'd say oh it's got, it's got four new characters I'm like don't you own Street don't you own Street Fighter 2 I'm like yes I do but I, it's, it's, it's slightly newer it's four you know? new ones <laughs> yeah who oh, I didn't really play as anyway I just played as Ken so we can do Flaming <laughs> Dragon Punch yeah. it's like no. I paid 50 quid for a Flaming Dragon Punch you know
2: no Nobody um,
3: played as Cammy in
2: <laughs> T-Hawk.
3: <laughs> no, not really. No, no. So yeah, that was yeah. So all of those kind sort of you know fond memories and nostalgia. What I just wanted to sort of really replicate in this documentary, and um, and also provide this kind of timeline of events that would sort of tap into everyone's sort of nostalgia and and not feel somewhat isolated by it. Therefore, like I remember that I played that. You know, mm. I remember the sort of frustrating. You know, trying to you know buy these games but i didn't have the money and you know maybe you know sort of hyped by the movie and then being hugely disappointed or pretending you liked it but you really hated it you know so that i hopefully that was all kind of you know from what you saw of it you know yeah. recently that was kind of replicated uh, in the documentary
2: so uh, who features in the documentary and uh, also did Capcom kind of have any involvement in it at all did you kind of have to reach out to Capcom with it all?
3: Uh no we we, we didn't involve Capcom because it was you know documentaries you know you can you can make anything mm. on a documentary and not have to ask people's permission. Yeah. Um you have to sort of go off go for the legal hurdles of fair use to make sure you're using things accordingly. So you now we've got interviews with like you'll see Paul Davis who worked for CVG, ex-editor of the, of the, you know, the great magazine. I always kind of knew of Paul, um, obviously Julian Jazrignal. You know, everyone knew Julian. Um, obviously, as a kid, I was, you know. He's obviously read the Nintendo Magazine system and obviously seen him on Games Master with his incredible mullet, you know. I think I think only he and Nick Kershaw can probably pull it off. And obviously got Lee D'Souza, you know, director of the movie. And um, We've got Damien McFerrin, obviously contemporary critic, uh, works for Nintendo Life and Time Extension. Uh, also Yoshiki Okamoto, the producer of Street Fighter 2, which was a real win because that was really difficult to get hold of him to sort of do it. Because he, he, After the interview, I think, I, I recall him saying, you know, he, he rarely talks about really gives gives interviews about Street Fighter 2, so we're all apparently quite lucky, uh, which was nice, you know. We also got to compose of the video game as well. She was an absolute delight. You know, she She felt so happy afterwards you know sort of talking about the music and being asked questions you had not been asked before and uh obviously skip skeller acted the voice of ryu from the animated movie uh ryan hart obviously a pro gamer a really fascinating guy very funny and because I'd, I'd seen you know some of the other pro gamers talk in a previous documentary but i seemed a little bit bored and a bit like not really enthusiastic and energetic when they were talking so which is kind of you know normal because how people act you know and i had a friend who did this you know big xbox event years ago and he had to interview all these pro gamers and he goes god they're all so boring it was like <laughs> it, it took him a nightmare him to edit and to edit this down he's these interview clips and um but that's kind of what people are i mean pro gamers aren't supposed to be sort of you know charismatic in a way but yeah ryan was just like a great laugh and uh we had you know two guys from digital foundry uh, john linneman and uh, audie Surly. audie was really vital behind the scenes because he had you know had contacts with a japanese crew and so yeah he was you know an absolute joy to sort of interview and sort of work with I was, I was one of my favourites was obviously uh, Jeff Walker, who would uh, you know worked on who worked for Capcom USA, sort of the arcade department, helped develop Champion Edition with James Goddard, James with James Goddard, sorry, who you know worked on Champion and Hybrid Fighting. James was like, yeah, when I interviewed him, he said like, am I going to be in this thing for like two minutes? Because he's done so many interviews in the past where you get interviewed for like two hours and you find yourself. For barely any time, any screen time. Mm-hmm. So don't worry, James. You'll be fine. And he is, and he's in, he's in it loads. And um, and and I love that guy. And I'll see. Sadly, you know, I I think maybe I, I think I was maybe the last person to interview Mick McGinty, who did the artwork for the U.S. releases of Street Fighter II. And he was an incredible storyteller, and I loved his voice. You know, and you know, he sadly passed away shortly after the interview, and I was shocked by that absolutely shocked because he's, he's seen seemed normal he's really healthy and just like well you don't know sometimes and um yeah he was just yeah a joy to interview so yeah that was it was it was real it was a bit of a challenge at first trying to find or trying to get people to commit to be interviewed because not everyone wants to be interviewed on camera because people are either either burned by the past or they've talked about it too much or they just don't want to be on camera so you had to sort of i had to sort of go through the sort of tick boxes of who would want to take part and stuff and And I kept the talking heads, like the number of interviewees, sorry, down to like, I think like 14, 15 people. And once you get too many interviewees, it just becomes a nightmare to juggle everyone and give them enough screen time. Because someone's going to dedicate two or three hours to to be interviewed, and you're going to use them for a minute. I I always felt insulting, you know, for their time. So I always try and give everyone enough screen time. You know, and uh, make sure their points are across. Also, you know, it may be down to you. could can interview some people, and they just don't have, just can't remember certain things. Um, but most people were just like on the on the game. You know, mm-hmm. they knew what they're talking about, and they remembered everything so vividly. And um, so that was really helpful for me. And you know, you could get if you can get, if you can get a great interview in like half an hour, forty-five minutes. It's, an, oh, it's, oh, it's a joy because you don't want to be sitting there for three hours of ums and ahs
0: mm.
3: where people trying to remember stuff. It's not fun to edit, but uh, yeah. The
0: less editing, the better, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Street Fighter 2, I mean, that's often credited. I mean, I remember that first came out back in the early nineties in mm. the arcades. I mean, a lot of people said that rejuvenated the arcade scene. I mean, what, what kind of factors do you think contributed to its success in the arcades and what kind of your memories of seeing it in the arcades? Um, I think to
3: its success, it was very much down to how it played. You know, a fighting game where you had special moves, you had combos, you had characters that were all colorful from, like, all set around from around the world. It played so differently to every other fighting game you'd, you'd seen before, which felt so stiff and like you couldn't do combos. Um, so, you know, like b- before that, you know, you also had Street Fighter 1, which was kind of moderate success. And, and you had other sort of competitors to it. But yeah, I suppose even at the same time, final, with, with Street Fighter 2 being developed, you had Fatal Fury in the background, which kind of played more like Street Fighter 1. But it still had a, a great, it was still great to look at and play. But like, obviously, prior to Street Fighter 2, we had Final Fight, which kind of gave you that sort of combo, sort mm. of combat. And it still had some still big, colourful characters. My experience with Street Fighter Two was very much—I'd uh, I'd heard it through a friend at primary school. It sounded amazing, and then the fair, well, you know, for the Americans, it's the carnival. You know, sort of turned up to my local village because I lived in a, a, a town just outside Cambridge and so i didn't we you know i didn't live in london i couldn't go down to all the you know the arcades they had there um so seeing street Fighter 2 for the first time was amazing you know because i you know never i only heard about it or maybe seen pictures in magazines like uh Me machines or something like that but then also you know very quickly afterwards because things kind of spread out slowly right the game was released in 91 but i think the majority of the people Around the world, maybe not we'll experienced it till later part of that year or early ninety two. Mm. Um, so when that time, there were talks about the Super Nintendo version, you know, of Street Fighter two coming to, exclusively to the Super Nintendo. And um, and then you seen the early screenshots, and then you saw the price of it. <laughs> like I know, I, I spoke to Paul Davis about it because he paid a hundred pounds for it on import. Every person I knew who was similar to me or maybe a bit older who had a bit of money spent over a hundred pounds on Street Fighter two for there and then obviously buying an import device to play the Japanese version on your UK SNES, you know. So it was a lot of money to people. people was that obsessed with it. Mm. They were willing to spend maybe over hundred pounds on it, which was in '92, that's a lot of money. Yeah. So it was, yeah, I to, to to properly play it like I could enjoy it at home was to rent it. And that was on the Mega Drive. That was a champion edition, uh sort of turbo port. That was that's, that's like ninety three. Mm. But also prior to that, I mentioned earlier, um The Commodore 64 version, which was like, came out, I think roughly the same time as the Snowden one. Because US Gold also got the rights and now we're going to put it out for Christmas of 90, was it 92, was it 93? I can't remember now. But yeah, so that was my experience with it. And my friends had it on the Amiga. And yeah, I I unfortunately had the worst port. Yeah. (laughs) So
2: um, (laughs) it's funny. So I loved that there's like a whole section in the documentary, like the first 20 minutes is kind of dedicated to Street Fighter 1. You know, Street Fighter 1 doesn't get, it doesn't get a lot of love. You know, Street Fighter 2 is kind of like, no. the, the, the you know, the world phenomenon. But if you're yeah. anything like me, it wasn't until I was an adult and kind of heard about Street Fighter 1, I never really thought about it, you know, that there was an original, like there was a first one. Yeah. Were, were you
3: familiar with Street Fighter 1, the game, before Street Fighter 2 at all? not at all not <laughs> at all it was so weird like mm. oh what's this game street fighter 2 mm. uh and then you just didn't you just didn't think about a first one yeah you know and then i got the player's guide that was advertised in all the magazines uh it was the game pro guide that was sort of put out in the uk to change the cover or something like that and in there it gave you like a timeline of things and it said fighting street on the pc engine i went what or TurboGrafx. I thought, well, why is it called Fighting Street? You know, but that mm. was Street Fighter One to my in my eyes at the time. And I didn't really play it to emulation. I thought, oh, okay, this is why they don't talk about Street Fighter One anymore. <laughs> and um I didn't know any friends who had it I because th- I had a Commodore obviously and I ch- I think I tried to get Street Fighter One because the cover, the advertising US Gold did was amazing. Mm. Like, like it looked like the Warriors you know uh like the covers they did it didn't look like street fighter at all cause it, for the us artwork was so different and i i, I just couldn't get it because all these magazines i got like commodore format i think they're old copies and these companies all gone defunct and they, you couldn't buy it anymore and um so my friend and amiga obviously didn't have it either so i had no experience of it to emulation and then uh yeah it wasn't great to play but there is actually people have done really good remakes of it like on those mugen engines where they've yeah I think some ten years ago, the Street Fighter One remastered, and it's so good. You can be like, you can be like a guy from Final Fight in there. You got combos, you got super moves. I was playing it the other day. I was like, wow, this is really good. Well, I should redo that. But obviously, as we through time went on, we mm. had Street Fighter Alpha One, Two, and Three, which essentially are kind of like that, yeah updates to Street Fighter One
2: prequels and stuff, aren't they? Yeah. If it makes sense yeah yeah, yeah.
3: but I, I i made sure to cover enough for street fighter one in the documentary because yeah. i didn't want it to be just a wishy-washy kind of like five Oversight, minutes oh it's, yeah. it's not very good gone i want to sort of really get people to talk about it mm.
0: well one thing i love that you covered as well is you know there's there's bootleg versions of street fighter 2 yeah. in the arcades they were quite prevalent at the time as well i mean give us a bit of insight into into those and why that happened
3: yeah that was that was interesting because you know i i in the, well, in the documentary, Jeff Walker had to deal with all the bootlegs because the Rainbow Edition came out, which is obviously a modded version of Champion Edition, which lets you, you know, if you play as Ryu, you can do like constant fireballs going up and down the screen. Sonic booms going up and down. You can have you can teleport. You can change character. It was completely broken, but it was super fast. And that's why people loved it. And so they also had to combat that by sort of finding out who did this. And they kind of like, well, I won't reveal it because it'll be the, the surprising documentary, but mm. they tried to stop it being distributed throughout the world. And it obviously didn't because a lot of it got out because we'd all played it, you know, uh, even at like a pub or chippy. You know, we, in my youth club at school, we had a rainbow edition of Street Fighter <laughs> 2. Uh, <laughs> and I was so annoyed because they took out, I remember mean, I used to go there when I was younger. They they took out the World Warrior and Mortal Kombat, which were both fine. They weren't bootlegs or whatever. Then they just dumped a, a rainbow edition of Street Fighter 2. I'm like, ah oh. <laughs> Um, that was a bit annoying. But you could com- if you're a Ryu though, you could complete it in about five, ten minutes. You could yeah. just speed through it, it by doing constant fireballs. But yeah, so to combat that they had to develop hyperfighting, you know, to sort of get rid of that off the market, to make people buy into another version of Street mm. Fighter 2. At the same time they were developing super and they're also reluctant to make another you know, uh, sort of update to um, Street Fighter 2 without introducing new characters. So, but yeah, they were reluctant, but it was really successful, Hyper Fighting. And that sort of made everyone forget about Rainbow Edition. Um, but I think that there's so many mods of that Champion Edition, because even if you try to find the right version people are talking about, it's, it, it took me a night, it was a nightmare trying to find the right version mm. of Rainbow Edition, because everyone had done their own mods. Yeah, yeah. Like over the years, I'm like, oh, this is not the version I played. You know, even the logo was different. Like, it should be how it should be like a rainbow color design.
2: Yeah.
3: Um, so, yeah, it was it was a nightmare trying to find that. And all, weirdly, like, because we're shooting, we shot all the interviews at 24 frames per second. Gameplay, it varies in its frame rates, doesn't it? It goes from, like, what, 30 to 60? Mm. So I shot in advance. I went, oh, okay, I'm going to be really smart here and capture everything at 60 frames per second. But if we drop 60 frames per second of gameplay into 24 frames per second timeline, it's awful it's so juddery Mm. it's like oh what am i gonna do my friend said oh just only just you know capture at 48 frames per second once you half that that's 24 it's still fine it looks great i was like yay but i had to do do a lot more gameplay (laughs) but i got i got better again at street fighter 2 thankfully (laughs) so uh street fighter 2 the animated
2: movie is a real fan favorite in your opinion, oh, what made the adaptation
3: work so well and stay true to the video game? Because uh, it's got special moves, it's got a squaring in it, it's got nudity. No, I'm joking. <laughs> um, I, th- I think because it focused on the characters, it focused on, mm. it focused on Ryu and Ken, yeah, uh, mainly Ryu, um, and that's what people loved. And I think that was really the storyline. In everyone's minds, was about Ryu. Mm. You know? um, so like in the case of the movie, well, it had to be Van Damme and obviously Guile because he's American. Just for just for marketing purposes, I think really, and to sell it worldwide, uh, which I completely understand. But the anime, it was very much like it felt like the game, it looked like the game, and it sounded like the game. And I just loved the UK dub, you know. And you go back and listen to the Japanese one. Who people have the people are fans of that style the music and the original voices. With subtitles, I was like, no, 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 no. I love the UK one because it's got loads of swearing in it. It's got the mm-hmm. like grunge music. It's got corn, silver chair, Alice in Chains. It's nuts. And that's what, and at 15 years old, you know, when I, when I came out on, on VHS, it was just like, oh, this is, this is Street Fighter for me. You know, at that age, it had all the violence. It had a bit of nudity and a, you know, foul language. <laughs> and, uh, and it just had the attitude. And that's the attitude of Street Fighter you kind of wanted. And what the movie was missing. And, um, it's kind of weird in a way because like the anime kind of came first before yeah. the live action movie, yeah. but in the, the documentary, um, kind of it's more of a Western perspective. So you have to sort of follow those timelines. So it's kind of the movie and then the anime. And the anime came out in the UK in like October of 95, which I still, still remember buying from like WH Smith, I think, or Woolworths, um, good old Woolworths. And in America, it didn't come out till 96 on VHS. It's weird, it's massive delays and stuff. But um, yeah, I mean, the anime sort of nailed it. And I, I, I don't think they ever nailed it again in terms of anime for Street Fighter. I know there's like TV shows they did. and I did an mm-hmm. alpha movie, but yeah, that one just really clicked at the time. And I think it's, that's what people are still really fond of, of that period.
0: I mean, over the years in terms of Street Fighter, to the game, I mean, there's been so many re-releases and compilations and upgrades. And, you know, if I think about the, there's probably a few video games that I brought on, Pretty much every platform for the last 30 years. You know, Sonic 2 would be one of them. I probably bought that about 20 times. <laughs> Street Fighter 2 would be the other one. It's just, you know, every generation it ends up getting repackaged. Yeah. I mean, why, why do you think the game continues to resonate with gamers today, like even 30 years later? I
3: think it's just down to it, it's very easy to play. You know the moves, you know the combos, it's not complicated like Street Fighter V or you know, even number six is coming out soon. But if you say look at Street Fighter Four and Five, we had these kind of different meters and stuff to it all. It made it a little bit more like, you know, as a as a someone who hasn't played it for a while, it's slightly intimidating. So going back to what you know is is people a lot more fond of. And that's why kind of when you review movies in my channel, when you cover a film that everyone's kind of familiar with, it's like, ah, oh, it's comfort food. And if you do something different or something slightly niche, they're like, Oh, I don't know if I should watch this because I'd never heard of it, whatever. But that's what people often become a little bit like, just don't try anything new, but you have to sort of play the game of like giving people what they want sometimes. Mm. And Capcom see that there's still a market for it. And every console release, there's going to be a Street Fighter collection. Mm. You know, which one's the best? I don't know. But, um, I still really love like Capcom generation five that was on the Saturn and PlayStation. Well, it's kind of called Street Fighter collection two for the PlayStation in the West, but it had like, if you complete the game, it's got, it's got World Warrior Champion Turbo. And once you completed it, you unlock the remix music and it's the 3DO music. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> that 3DO Super Turbo music was incredible. So that that was kind of my favorite version. But I spoke to Stephen Frost, you know, in the documentary, who's again, really knowledgeable, was a, was a, you know, a critic beforehand, you know, before he jumped into the world of sort of video games and developing them. Uh, Cause he worked on the anniversary collection for the, thirty uh, fifth. So it was like uh he'd wanted to include a lot more stuff on it, like the console ports, the rainbow edition, mm-hmm. the movie video game, but trying to get clearance for the the arcade edition of Street Fighter Two, the movie one. Yeah. It'd be a nightmare. So but he'd mm-hmm. he, oh man, I yeah, because there's been, really been no port cool. of it, hasn't yeah, There's two versions but, of not,
2: it as well, isn't there? The arcade game yeah. and the
3: home console are actually
2: different games, aren't they? So that would have yeah, been I, really
3: cool to see. Oh, definitely, because everyone still kind of and no one's really fond of those no. movie games, right? But people like the console version because it plays like Super Turbo. But I'm like, no, 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 I love the arcade one because the animation's so slick, mm. but it, it's so nuts and bonkers and just like so quick. You just don't know what you, it doesn't really play like Street Fighter Two in a cl- in traditional sense. Yeah. But I just love its kind of swagger and kind of like just the animation style and and it's never yeah, say it never been that version's never been officially ported. So uh, how can people watch
2: documentary and what's the reaction been like so far?
3: Well, reaction, you know, from uh, the premiere, we had everyone absolutely loved it, which was a big relief because you know we'd only shown it to well, any of the production team had seen it, and obviously we've seen it over and over and over again. So you sort Mm. of become a bit snowblind to stuff, or just like, does this work? I don't know. And then once we premiered it, everyone was like, "Wow, this is amazing!" And um, and you know, as you say, very early on, it's very comprehensive. And I think the only criticism, criticism I could say so far was like it. Perhaps maybe a little bit too long for the for the casual gamer, uh, but I, I you know I had an obligation and something I wanted to do to sort of make sure I covered everything and give everything a sort of fair amount of time throughout because I don't like watching documentaries where you're waiting for the bit you want to hear about and it's like a minute and it's like oh great you know so yeah. I dedicate enough time to like the the, the the micro ports and the the magazine coverage and and uh, even so you know even like the movie games so it wasn't just forgotten about. We're also taking pre-orders at the moment for the Blu-ray. Uh, the backers who helped fund it, because this was a crowdfunded production, we're getting their, getting their copies digital and Blu-rays in the next coming weeks. And, um, so we're hoping to sort of ship everything out in May. And then, yeah, it should be hopefully in the next couple of weeks. Well, a couple of months, sorry, there will be a digital copy. So if you want to get it on Blu-ray, um, we've ex- it's got extra ex- special features. It's region free. You can get it now. And also you'll be. D- sent out in may um so yeah i'm kind of excited to let more people see it because you know it's you know reviews so far people that have screened it um have all been you know extremely positive which is great um so yeah i'm just kind of hoping you know the fan base who really loves street Fighter and i and obsess over it find something new in there or just find a, a do- they, they can see it and really connect to it and not feel left out in a way like some of the previous ones and find something that really connects with them Um, So fingers crossed it sort of plays out in my (laughs) favour.
0: Yeah, Oliver. It's you know, like I said Joe and I have both watched it. The presentation's fantastic. You go so in depth as well, and it's just yeah for anyone that loves Street Fighter, you know, you, it's it's an essential watch. So um, I'll obviously link up your website where people can order the Blu-ray uh, in mm. our show notes as well. Thank you. Um, I, I mean obviously, I mean you've been, I imagine, you know, deep in this for the last couple of years. I mean, anything kind of on the pipeline? You're kind of thinking about what your future projects might be? Oh
3: God, I'm having a break, mate. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, no, um, well deserved. I, yeah, because it's it's been a long process. It's been a fun process as well. It's It's taken longer than I expected, but, you know, we had to battle COVID as well, you know, people's availability. I mean, we shot this on a limited budget, but, you know, the camera operators and crew made it look like a million bucks. You know, it's like the B-roll stuff they shot was just amazing. So I think after this, you know, I have been developing another documentary, which may be on the Superman films, but we'll see how that plays out. But I've been enlisted to edit a feature film, uh, an action movie called... The last Kumite, which is kind of a throwback to Bloodsport and Kickboxer. So this is, that's kind of the, you know, the like a couple of days left of crowdfunding that production. And they've got some great B movie stars in it, like Cynthia Rothrock, Matthias Hughes. You've got Kurt McKinney from No Retreat, No Surrender. You've got the bad guys from like Bloodsport and Lionheart. So yeah, it's a really cool cast. And it's like on an edit, editing, editing a, a proper feature film, not like a documentary, but. Something with, you know, drama, acting and, and action in it, which is going to be really exciting. So uh, they're going to be shooting that in June, I believe. So maybe July I'll be having to edit that movie and the stress that comes with that. You know, for, <laughs> yeah, I'm not really having a break, really. I should I should really have a break because I'm, you know, I'm shattered all the time.
0: Oh, it sounds like you're loving it though. Oh, yeah, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. yeah. You
3: complain, stuff, yeah. but you do love it, so...
0: Yeah. And obviously you know you're releasing new YouTube videos all the time as well so I mean, you know for anyone that hasn't seen your channel yet I'll put a link to your channel in the show notes too so Thank uh, you very much. Yeah. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Good luck with the movie and uh, thanks so much for reminiscing with us over the last hour.
3: Thank you very much for having me on. It's been a pleasure chatting with you guys. It's uh yeah, it's it's you know I love your podcast so it's great to be on it.